0: Have you ever been on a hike in the woods and suddenly found yourself lost think back to the terror you felt when you lost your bearings and the relief that came when someone found you and got you back on the right path our topic is how lost are you lost and dave wortson our truth encounter study leader begins our lesson with an incredible story about his dad who got lost in the fog on Scroon Lake in upstate New York. Listen and discover how you can become part of the most exciting search team in the whole world. Every Wednesday night at Word of Life in the summer, they have a campfire service. It's the highlight of the week. And that's where they have the missionary challenge, and that's where they encourage the kids to dedicate their lives completely to the Lord. And, and my dad, that was his big service of the week. But when he left that service, my dad lived four and a half miles down the lake. And ordinarily, he'd jump in this big Century speedboat, and you could hear the distinctive roar of that big Century engine propelling him down the lake. Now all that dad needed to do was to go out of the boathouse, turn to the left and head south, straight down the lake. Look at his compass, you know, keep it straight on the 180 and he'll just go straight down south and get home and there's a buoy down there and he'll be fine. But this night, for some reason, there was another buoy that was just about a quarter of the way down the lake and he decided that he would turn on that buoy. And so instead of going straight down the lake in a kind of a foggy, dark night, He made a sharp left turn. I don't know why in the world he made it, but he made it. He thought he was going directly south. He was very sincere about the direction that he was going. He was very confident that he was going home. But in reality, as he pulled on the power of that speedboat and began to pull the boat over and and begin to accelerate, he was accelerating towards disaster because instead of going south, he was going straight east and he went full barrel about 30 miles an hour right into the shore. Threw him right out of the boat right over the front of the windshield he was knocked out kind of and then he kind of walked around about 20 minutes after this my mom starts to get really worried and she starts to call people and she's asking where in the world is jack where in the world is jack well, they begin to go combing, you know, the boat drivers get out their boats with massive searchlights. They begin looking over the shore, and finally, after they search for maybe an hour or so, they see the beautiful boat about 15 feet up on the shore, up on the rocks. My dad, they can't find him. They run up on the shore thinking he's been killed. Suddenly he comes straggling out of the woods, and the first thing he said is, Don't you ever tell my march my wife. Don't you mention one word about what happened. And second of all, I want this boat out of here by the morning, and I want all of you to zip your lips up about what happened. Showed you a little bit about my dad's character, you know. <laughs> one other thing he mentioned, didn't we have a great campfire? You know, here's a guy that almost got killed, crashed his speedboat right near the shoreline. He's talking about the great campfire that they had. But what I want to understand about that story is my dad was really sincere. My dad thought he knew where he was at, but in reality, he was terribly, terribly lost. Terribly lost. And he didn't know it. In fact, he pulled out all the power in that speedboat. He cranked it up to 30 knots. He thought everything was going great, but he was heading for disaster. And it was only by the grace of God that my dad wasn't killed. As we look at society today, as we look at the world today, I think that my dad blasting through that fog in the speedboat represents where a lot of your friends are, where a lot of people are in the world. Do you realize that Christianity is more than 86 million times bigger today than it was in 33 AD when Jesus Christ died? It's more than 83 million times bigger As we talk about reaching the world, we're going to talk to you about all the different exciting things that are taking place around the world. I want to talk to you about how lost are the lost. And I want to remind you, I want to try to give you a picture of where millions upon millions of people in the world today are in their condition. And many of them don't even know it. Do you realize that 9 out of every 10 people in the world, 9 out of every 10 people in the world have never had someone sit down with them and in a loving, sensitive way that they would be able to understand, share what Jesus Christ did for them. Nine out of every ten people in the world. Many of you have heard the gospel over and over again. Many of your friends in your school have heard the gospel over and over again. But nine out of every ten people in the world never have the opportunity of hearing a loving, understandable, sensible presentation of the gospel. There's another group of people, one out of every two people live in, the, in, in a culture or in a tribal situation where there is no evangelizing church. In other words, one out of every two people in the world live in a community of people where there's no church that's trying to reach out with a message of the gospel. And unless and unless someone goes from the outside, unless someone comes to them from another culture, there's no way that they're ever going to hear about Jesus Christ. You see, many of you might be sitting here today and saying, well, you know, I think the days of missions is over. I think the days when we need young people to get really excited about going into other cultures is over. Because after all, who are we to think that we can change their behavior? Who are we to think that we have something we need to give them? I mean, after all, don't they have their religions? Don't they have their beliefs? Don't they have their customs? And shouldn't we honor them? Isn't it just another form of American imperialism or British imperialism to to take the gospel and to think that other people need to hear about Jesus Christ? And so across the United States today, there's all kinds of people that think there's no need out there in the mission field. And it all comes down to one basic question. Do we believe that the lost are really lost? Now the last thing in the world that we need is another screaming preacher that sits there telling you that the lost are lost and they're all going to burn in hell and and a terrible thing. Because I've got news for you. I don't have any idea in my own thinking, in my own evaluation, in my own analysis of things, I don't have any idea what's going to happen when someone dies. I can't figure it out through my reason. I can't figure it out through my chemistry background. I can't figure it out through the philosophy books that I've read. And I want you to know that I'm not going to tell you as some bigoted, narrow-minded preacher that I'm the one that decides eternal destiny. But I do know someone that does decide eternal destiny. I want to just share with you from my own heart that I know that I'll make a journey one day into that realm, whatever is out there. And I want to try to talk to you about who we're going to face and how he's going to evaluate us and what the criterion of judgment is going to be. Because whether we like it or not, reality is reality. You see, my dad thought he was going in a great direction. My dad thought everything was fine. But in reality, he was bombing towards the shoreline that could have killed him. And it's very possible that there are millions upon millions of people in the world that are bombing through life. And we can say, well, everything is fine. And I think even in our own schools, because I don't want you to think just of the hot and tot that's way out there in Australia somewhere or in Africa somewhere, but I want you to think about the people right in your school, right in your community, right in your job. There's people that are lost, and many of them don't even know it. And we need to ask the question, how lost are the lost? And in order to get the answer to that question, we need to ask ourselves, first of all, who is everybody going to face one day when they go into eternity? You ever ask that question? Everybody on planet Earth, the billions that have lived before, one day it's appointed unto man once to die. And that's women too. You ladies can't get excluded from that one. That's probably one I wish you could get excluded from. But it's appointed unto human beings once to die. And after that, tell me. The judgment. Now this is a big question. I found out whenever you're going to have a test, like when I was in doctoral studies and when I came through all that schooling, one of the things that I learned, if you were going to be evaluated... If you're going to be judged, if you're going to face a test, it was really and really important to know who you're going to face. So the very first question we need to ask when we think about how lost are the lost, is we need to find out who's going to decide whether they're lost or not. Who's going to decide what happens to them in eternity? And so when you tell me, you say, well, I think, you know, people can be Buddhists, I think they can be be Confucianists, I think they can be Shintoists, whatever they want to be. You can hold those views, but you need to come to grips with something. God says in his word that one day every human being on planet earth is going to face one man. I want you to turn to John chapter 5. Because the biblical Jesus made an incredible claim in John chapter 5 verses 22 and following. John chapter 5 verses 22 and following. Look what he says. And we'll begin with verse 19. This is in the passage Jesus has just healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, the man that had been lying there and no one was there to help him into the water when the angel came down and brought healing to some that could get into the water. And so Jesus just very lovingly reached down and told this man to get up and walk and it was on the Sabbath day of all things. So the the religious leaders got all uptight about Jesus doing this good thing about the Sabbath and they got in a big argument with him about his right to break their little religious rules and regulations. And that led him in verse 19, it led Jesus in this confrontation about authority to say some very important things about his authority. And Jesus begins to answer who everybody on planet earth is going to have to face someday. Look what it says. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. Now, not many people are going to tell you the truth. I might not tell you the truth. And a lot of people you meet might not tell you the truth. But I believe that if you'll consider it and if you'll listen, you'll understand, if you'll open your heart, that Jesus Christ is the one man in all the universe that told the truth. And Jesus is saying, I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by himself. So the son isn't an independent operator. He always works in conjunction with someone else. The son can do nothing of himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. I want you to think about the linkage with the eternal God. His father is the eternal God. So Jesus the son is claiming an eternal linkage, a total oneness with his father. He says he can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. So God the Father is the invisible God and what Jesus is claiming is that the invisible God becomes visible to us, present to us, understandable to us, revealed to us through the Son. goes on and says this, for the Father loves the Son and he shows him all that he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these what's even greater than healing the man that was lame at the pool of Bethesda? Well, he's going to tell us. Look what he says. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life. Jesus makes this claim. There is a God in heaven that when someone dies, like when my dad died, when your mom died, or maybe one of your children died, or one of your loved one dies, it's saying that there is a God that can give life out of that condition of deadness. There is a God, there is a Father who raises the dead. And he gives them life. Even so, the Son gives life to whomever he pleases to give it. Did you hear that? What it's saying is that God the Father has the power to give life out of deadness. And it's saying that the Son of God, Jesus, this human being that was talking with these religious leaders in the first century, had that same kind of power. It goes on and says this. Moreover, the Father judges no one, So somebody says, somebody will say, well, I'm going to face God someday. Everyone's going to face the same God, and and God will decide everything. And some of us call him Allah, and some of us call him El. The old Canaanites call him El, and sometimes they call him Baal, the master. And there's all different kind of names. You can go on and on and on. There's all different names for whatever that being is. I got news for you. Jesus says, no, you're not going to face just some impersonal transcendent force. He says, you won't even face... The invisible, almighty God the Father. You're going to face someone you can look right in the eyeball. Face to face. Eye to eye. It's going to be Jesus. He's going to be Jesus, the God who took upon himself the form of a man. Jesus is saying that the invisible God the Father gave all judgment over to the Son of God. Now that's an incredible claim. In fact, you can throw Jesus out on that one. You can say, oh, I think he's a lunatic. Man, we better put him in the insane asylum if he claims that kind of authority. You can hold that. That's what C.S. Lewis said. Or you can say he was a deceiver. He was a very evil man. Or you can get ready to meet him. Because John is telling you that all the judgment has been turned over to this man, Jesus. For moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus is talking about this incredible connection. We ask the question, who are all the people on planet Earth going to face? We answer that question. One day, every human being on planet Earth, myself included, is going to be face-to-face, not with Buddha, not with Confucius, not with Muhammad, but I'll be face-to-face with Jesus. If I'm Buddhist, I'll be face-to-face with Jesus. It's an incredible claim. It cuts right across modern pluralism. But you can take it or leave it. But it's true. You can be like my dad and say, Oh man, I think we're going great. I think I'm heading right towards home. And you can go ahead and take your chances. I want all of you that already believe in Jesus to get a hold of what you've grabbed a hold of. Because we need to think very, very clearly. I didn't say it. I didn't make it up. But the Word of God in the Bible, the historical document, the Gospel of John is saying that the biblical historical Christ claimed that one day everyone would face Him. In fact, it's repeated over and over again. I'll just kind of quote you another section. We won't take the time to look at it, but you can check it out later. In Acts chapter 17, verses 30 through 31, when the Apostle Paul was speaking in Athens on Mars Hill to all the intellectuals of the Athenian culture that day, He came through his message and he talked about how God revealed himself and how God wasn't very far away and because in him we live and move and have our being and he quoted one of the Greek poets. But then he closed his Mars Hill proclamation like this. And God has appointed a man God has appointed a man who will be the one that evaluates all other human beings. And God has pointed him out and ordained him to be the man by raising him from the dead. You see, the resurrection is the key thing that proves that God the Father has accepted his Son and that one day all mankind will face the Son of God. When Peter was before Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, as he talks about the working of Jesus in his own life, he comes right down through and he says this, I've understood now that God shows no partiality, that God doesn't look upon Jews one way and Gentiles another, but God looks at all mankind the same. And then he says this, And God has appointed a man by raising him from the dead who will be the judge of all mankind. So when we ask the question, how lost are the lost? What I want you to realize is, first of all, that in this modern belief that everything's pluralistic, there's all different kinds of religions, no matter what religion you might face, if you believe at all what the word of God is saying, the Bible stresses clearly that one day when you die, you're going to face Jesus. When I was taking doctoral exams, the first question I wanted to know was who I'm going to face. The second question is, what are they going to ask me? What's the judgment going to be based upon? The word of God reveals very clearly what the judgment will be based upon. Let's look at it. Turn to Matthew chapter 13, over a few pages, to Matthew chapter 13, and let's look at verses 40 through 43. Matthew 13, 40 through 43. And Jesus tells us how he's going to evaluate things, even before even before we take the exam. This is kind of in his explanation of the parable of the sower. Remember the story told about the seed that's sowed and how the evil one comes and puts tares among the wheat, and why there's so much error and deception even in the church family. There's those that are really sincere and there's those that are not. And Jesus is evaluating all that and the disciples say, tell us the meaning of the parable of the sower. And At the end of it, Jesus explains, he says this, look at verse 37, we'll pick it up there. The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. So the son of man has sowed good seed in the world. The field is the world. I didn't say the field is the United States. The United States was hardly even thought of in the ancient world at this time. So it's not an exclusive Western thing, okay? The field is the what? Everybody tell me. The field is the? Tell me again. What's the field? It's the world. Very important. It's, it's the universal world. The field is the world. It says, and the good seeds stand for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, the judgment time, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. The judgment's going to be based upon total fairness, it'll be based upon a total understanding of what's in all of our lives and it says something really powerful. Anyone that causes anyone to sin and all who do evil are going to have this happen to them. They will be thrown into the fiery furnace. And I even hate to read this. I didn't say this. In fact, I would never speak to you this way. But it says that those who cause others to sin And those who do evil themselves, they will be thrown into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But there's a contrast. But the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now what is Matthew saying? He's saying that everyone that causes anyone else to sin, in other words, for example, if I'm working with my little brother... ...when we were, you know, as we start to grow up in our teenage years... ...and I say, come on, Ron, you need to go with me, man. Let's go down and we're going to steal a little bit of produce... ...get some fruit and we'll steal some candy bars. And I caused my brother to shoplift. I caused him to sin. It says that I become someone who's caused someone else to sin. It talks about if I've done evil. If I've done evil. So as I evaluate my own heart... ...what the scripture is saying is one day I'm going to face... The Son of God. I'll face Jesus, and as I face Jesus, as He looks into my heart, if I've caused others to sin, if I've caused others to do evil, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to be thrown into a place of suffering. Now that's a heavy-duty thing. It doesn't say he's going to grid in the curve. He says, you know, evaluate total justly. In fact, let's look at some verses that talk about the fairness of this. It will be absolutely fair. Turn to Matthew chapter 16, verses 26 and 27. It says here, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. It's like we learned about in the previous pageant, Matthew 13. And it says that when he will come, he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some of you who are sitting here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The phrase I want you to see, he will reward each person according to what he's done. Some of you that might not have ever received the gospel, you're sitting here saying, you know, I think I'm as good as the next guy. I think that I do as many good works as the next guy. And you're probably right. What I want you to know is that one day everyone will face Jesus as the judge. Number two, the judge is going to evaluate every one of us totally in fairness. It'll be totally impartial. And he will evaluate all that we've done. And those that have done good, those that have done good could go to heaven. And those that have done evil are going to be lost eternally. It it's says that those who have caused others to sin, those who have done evil themselves, they're going to be lost. That's what the scriptures say. Now hang with me. Because some of you that are sitting here are saying, well, that's what I believe. You know, I believe that the good people are going to get there and the bad people are not. But I want you to stop and think about yourself. Because I need to think about myself. If I put Dave Wurtzen in this scenario, I'm going to face Jesus, and Jesus is going to evaluate me totally fairly. You know, to be honest with you, I wouldn't even want Mary to evaluate me. You see, if I sit in Mary, and this is going to be based on pure justice, goodness... Man, haven't I been a good husband? And haven't I been a good person? You see, Mary knows me better than anyone else, and I wouldn't I wouldn't fare very well. I'm probably not going to make it. You see, she knows when I teach you something and then I don't live it during the week. And so she would have to say, Yeah, there's times when Dave's inconsistent. She would also have to know that there's times when I watch a TV show, that I tell you, you really shouldn't watch something, and I sit there and gloat at some immoral TV show. And every one of you have probably done that at one time or another, too. And Mary knows there's times when I might do that, and it would be wrong. And so I do a foul deal. In Greek, it's foulus. I do a foul deed. I do a wrong deed. You see, I'm just like you. But I'll be honest with you, the truth of my own heart, I don't even want to face Mary's judgment. None other than someone that knows every single detail of my life. And it's with me in my every thought. That's what Jesus is saying. So if you're sitting there going, you know, I think everyone's going to be all right. And I think in the end everything will turn out great. Just think about your own heart. Think about close friends that you have. Think about what people are really like. Don't believe that nostalgic, sentimental kind of stuff. Think about what people are really like. What the Word of God reveals, the Word of God is the one place today that I think is really telling us the truth. Because most people are like my dad. Man, we're bombing. We're going right through the fog. Man, we're headed for home. Man, we're heading to crash on the shore. We don't even know it. The word of God comes to us and says, listen, one day you're going to all face Jesus. Number two, it's going to be totally based upon your works. Whether you've done good things or whether you've done bad things. It's going to be totally fair. No favoritism. Nobody gets by. No teacher's pet. Total justice. Total fairness. Now that's a rough one. He says this divine judge is going to judge every one of us. It says this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secret through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. And earlier, I want you to look up Romans chapter 2, verse 6. It says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person. This is the way the judgment will be. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and also for the Gentile. So what is Paul saying? What is Jesus saying? He's saying, number one, one day everyone faces Jesus. Number two, he's saying that the criterion of judgment is going to be absolutely impartial. It'll be totally fair. It'll be totally based upon what's really going on in our life. And it says that those who have really persisted in doing the good, they would go to heaven. Those who have persisted in doing the evil, they're going to go to hell. Now, where do we stand right now? Well, Romans goes on to tell something very important. Romans chapter 2 culminates in a section, and you have to skip the chapter. But if you look over just a little bit in Romans chapter 2, it closes by talking about the fact that every single one of us based upon that criterion are going to be lost. In fact, if you look at Romans chapter 3, verse 20 would be the summary of this whole section. Look at Romans 3, verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. You hear what Paul says? What Paul is saying is it's true. God's judgment will be totally fair. God knows everything that's going on in our heart. He knows every detail and what he closes with is saying, but based upon that judgment, every single person on planet earth, if we do it based upon what's good and what is evil and what's really going on in their life, it's saying, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. What the Bible reveals about human beings is, and Romans chapter 1 describes this, you say, well, Dave, how could anyone be lost? What about people that have never heard about Jesus? What the Bible reveals is that everyone can hear about God the Father. Everyone can look at nature. Psalm 19 says that every single day when the sun comes up, every single day when the sun comes up, you can begin to know about the God. You can know he's all-powerful. You can know just looking at your own personality, Romans 1 tells us, you can know that he's not a thing, he's not an it, he's not just a a metal idol or something like that. He has to be a personal being that that can think, feel, and decide. Romans chapter 1 says that you can know a whole lot of things just by nature that everyone can receive every day. But you know what Romans 1 describes? Romans 1 describes exactly what happens to our friends at school exactly what happened in some of your businesses, exactly what happens in your life. People can have knowledge of God. They can have the truth of God and they willingly decide to suppress it. They willingly decide to hold it down. I have this illustrated again and again. A lot of you have heard me teach day in and day out and year in and year out. But you know what? As soon as you start to sin, as soon as you start to sin, you know what you do? You disappear. You don't want to see me You don't want to talk about the Bible. You get angry with your friends that are trying to teach you the Bible. Sometimes they'll tell you, oh, you know, those people are unfriendly. You know, those people didn't reach out to me. You know, I'm just not into this Bible thing. I'm not into this Jesus thing. But, you know, I want to tell you just honest to goodness what the truth is. Often the truth is that someone has chosen to do wrong. And when you choose to do wrong, you suppress the truth. Do you understand the power of that? You hold it down. You don't want it to express itself. And so I'll have people, suddenly people that ate with me, they had breakfast with me, they, they came for counseling times, they were a close friends, suddenly they don't want to have anything to do with me. Man, that used to really, really bother me. And it still bothers me, but, it, but now it bothers me for a different reason. I used to think that I'd blown it with my personality, that I had bad breath, or maybe I didn't use the right cologne, or that maybe there was something wrong with the whole personality this whole church. But as I grow older, I'm getting honorary. Getting I'm also getting a lot more realistic. You know what I realize? If you do wrong, if you do wrong, the last place you want to be is with someone that will tell you. You know what the scripture's saying? Like, I have dear doctor friends of mine. I've seen it happen just in the last few weeks. Dear doctor friends of mine will do surgery. And they'll expose that someone is really, really sick. Someone really has malignancy. Someone has real cancer. But you know what the people will do? I've seen people just look at them and say, it's not true. And they'll get furious at the doctor. They'll even go to another doctor. And if you look hard enough, you can probably find a doctor that would say, oh yeah, you ought to eat grapes from now till eternity, or you ought to eat raisins, or you ought to eat seeds, or you ought to go down to Mexico, whatever it might be. You can do all of those things, but there will be a dear surgeon. There will be a dear surgeon that's saying, listen, if we don't radically deal with this, you're going to die. And I love you enough to tell you the truth. You've got a malignancy. You're really sick and you need to do something about it. And all this inserted in the world doesn't make you get well. When you're being attacked by a malignant disease, you've got to fight for everything your worse. And you need to do the radical things that a physician says that you should do. We could debate about what really should be done for malignancy, but the Word of God undebatably declares what needs to be done for the malignancy of our soul. Look what it says in verse 21. It says, but now, this is the great good news... It says, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the laws and the prophets testify. Everybody have it. This is such an important verse. Look at verse 22. This righteousness, this goodness, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned, and they fall short of the glory of God. You see, based upon Jesus' judgment of our life and our own strength, we all sin, and we all fall short of the glory of God. Children, this is what this one verse means. It means that everybody, when they face God's impartial, righteous judgment, they're going to be lost. They are lost. They're going to be cast aside from God's presence. But there's great good news. There's a great good news for you and for the world. It says, But through the faith there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But, and, they are justified freely by his grace. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Christ, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What the scripture is teaching us is this. Based upon the righteous judgment of God, how lost are the lost? They're completely lost. One day they're gonna face Jesus as their judge. It'll be totally impartial, totally fair. There'll be degrees of punishment in hell the scripture makes very, very clear. But you know what this scripture reveals? It reveals that all the world has been given the revelation of nature and who God is. But human beings suppress it just the way you do. Human beings around the world suppress that knowledge. You say, what about a person who hasn't heard? They'll be judged just based upon what they've received. They'll be judged just based upon what they've done. They'll be judged just based upon what's going on in their own heart. I want to ask you a question. How many of you would like to face the judgment of Jesus just in your own merits? You see, I wouldn't want to stand before Jesus for a minute, for a minute in my own merit. And that's why the incredible message has been given to us. But there's another way. God sent his son to the world when we were yet sinners. Christ died in our place. And anyone can just reach out and receive that message and they can have eternal life. There was a young Irish girl. She was born 1865, just right at the conclusion of the Civil War. She was born into Ireland where the only hope that most girls would have to be is to try to hook a man and be able to raise a family. And none of that came to Amy. None of that came to her. She couldn't attract a man and and she just wasn't getting along that well. In fact, a lot of people thought her life was going to be a failure. But you know, Amy started to get a hold of the fact, Christ died for our sins. Christ died for the world. She started reading the Word of God, and there was a mighty movement in Ireland and in England at the day. And people from all over, young people from all over the world, especially from that part of the world, were being challenged to go and take the gospel into all the world. She was burdened to go, and so one of the very first places she went to was Japan. When she got to Japan, she adopted the Japanese style. She found out that the the people she was trying to talk to... ...were a lot more interested in her Western clothing than than in her message. They didn't care less about the gospel. And so Amy put on a kimono and she began to relate to the Japanese. But in just six months, she got sick. And when she got sick, she had to leave... ...and she had to go with her mission to Shanghai, of all places, China... ...for her furlough recuperation. In Shanghai, she felt called to the Lord to go to Sri Lanka... And she was facing the challenge of learning a completely new Asian language. But then her mentor back home in, in England got very sick. A man named Robert Wilson got very sick. And so she came back to England to take care of him because he had a stroke. Other people were saying, this girl's a failure. She jumped from one plate to the next. Maybe some of you young people are like that. Maybe some of your parents are scratching their heads saying, man, what in the world's going on with this 23-year-old, this 22-year-old? Well, Amy was like that. Then she felt called the Lord to go to India, and she arrived in India in 1895. When she arrived in India, in southern India, her fellow missionaries said, Amy will make it for six months, that's it. No hope, she'll make it six months, she'll be back home. She's already failed in Japan, she's, you know, gaveling it around the globe, even in this Victorian era, she's not going to make it. But Amy began to slug it out in an Indian culture that treated women like dirt. Treated women just like pieces of property. And she wasn't making any headway. She adopted the sari just like she did in Japan. She started adopting the dress. She started to build on an idea like, oh, Lord, help me to care. Oh, Lord, help me to help other people to care. And Amy began to care for the people. And little did she know that from 1895 until 1901, the Lord was preparing her for a great challenge. For in 1901, a girl named Pina came to her off the street. This dear little girl had already run away twice from the temple area. You see, in India of that day, they would take a young girl when they were just little babies, and the, some of the parents would dedicate them to temple prostitution. And these little girls would be raised in the temple. And when they reached puberty, rather than having the joy of a family that would love them and challenge them to purity, challenge them to wait till they had the partner that God wanted them, all the precious revelation that we have in this family right here, these temple leaders would cause that girl, in the name of God, in the name of religion, to become a temple prostitute. And she would be used up by the time she was in her mid-twenties. And then she would just be trashed in the dregs of Indian society. This little girl came, young girl, came to Amy. And she and her fellow missionary faced an incredible challenge. The people in the village said, you can't keep her. The temple leaders came and said, it's our custom. It's what we believe. And if Amy believed like a lot of you believe, well, you know, we all have different customs. And some people believe in Jesus. Some people believe in the Indian religion. If we believe like that, then Amy would have taken that little girl and would have said, you can go back because that's your religion and everybody needs to do what their religion says. But Amy didn't believe that like that. Amy believed it was the powers of darkness. It was foul deeds. It was the power of the adversary, the evil one, that caused people to even develop a religious system that would abuse little girls like that. And little Amy said, because of the love of Jesus, this little girl needs to stay with me. And that began what became the Donovar Fellowship. And Amy Carmichael, this girl that wasn't going to make it, that wasn't going to make it in India, ministered for over 50 years in that country. And when she died, she was known. This single girl named Amy Carmichael was known as the Amma of India, the mother of India. You know why? Because it wasn't just Prina that came. It was one little girl after another. And she devoted her whole ministry to gathering these street girls in and she was the one that brought love and support and the message of Calvary to that land. And Amy Carmichael's life, when I was in high school, when I was in a Christian high school down in Florida, every day we would begin reading a little book, and it was Amy Carmichael's incredible gift of writing, where she would come out with one insight after another about what it meant to have the love of Christ. Young men and women, if you want a cause, if you want something you can pour your life into, Not all of us are going to be able to go, but all of us can be involved in support. Amy Carmichael became the mother of India because she was a single girl that though she could never find the love of a husband, she found the love of her ultimate heavenly savior. And he made her the mother, thousands upon thousands of girls that would have never heard of the love of Jesus. And her life is still having impact today. When you look at the needs here, They are minuscule compared to the gigantic needs that are over there. God wants us to have a passion to reach this lost world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that begins right here at home.